No, and you can't even play. You can't even survive by just playing gigs um, here. Anyway, <clears throat> you almost have to pay to play. Just the expense of of just the expense of getting around and you know um, getting to and from places. Especially with gear, if you don't own a car, well, it's hard to keep a car. We don't really have one anymore. It's been a while. Um, whether you use one of the rideshare services or the subway, you know, you're paying either way. What brought you out here initially? It was a place where my wife and I just both wanted wanted to live, and um, she was able to get a transfer, and it was sort of the next logical choice for us yeah at the time so did you move from cleveland no we were in charlotte north carolina for a couple years okay i mean that's a pretty nice spot and there's a lot happening in the triangle musically yeah i found i found some some kindred spirits there that uh that made music and um it wasn't too bad you're in so many bands and play on so many bands records that i don't know how much geography really matters to you at this point new york is still a place that um you have your you have proximity to some some studios and and uh you know still sort of an entertainment hub and you can sort of convene with more people that way and, and um, come into contact with, with, with more, I guess, more professionals. If you really seek it out. In terms of the last few years, and I, I actually used, you know, as you know, I used to do this uh, show like exclusively in person and was very, uh, stubborn about I, like I missed out on a lot of really great interviews because I, I I insisted that everything be done in person and then a pandemic happened and you know I started using this setup for you uh, was was there a certain amount that you could do remotely yeah um, yeah I mean there were a lot of projects that we still do remotely um to a degree and some not but uh i prefer the in-person um and pandemic or no pandemic sometimes that's just hard to do you strike me as somebody who really thrives with collaboration uh well not necessarily but um i do find that it helps when i have an an engineer (laughs) I, I prefer that having an engineer to uh, kind of you know do everything and um, do the housework and as far as how or what housekeeping whatever you call it with computer files this and that and, and uh, engineering the session and I can sort of do that but I'm, I'm really not that great at it. We're both in Queens and Queens was like the epicenter of COVID in those first few months. How, uh, how'd you make it through? Uh, I don't, I don't know. Just we're sort of really careful, I guess. Um, 
I mean, eventually, I mean, it comes around to everybody, and we did get it eventually, but um, it wasn't until the next year, really. I don't think, anyway. Um, there might have even been something very early on, but who knows. Um, but uh, just were careful and, and, and followed the protocols and stayed in, found found where to order food, you know. A good percentage of your job was just, just kind of ground to a halt because touring went away and... Um, you know, were, were you were you actively were you like doing a lot of songwriting? Were you doing a lot of recording? Not really. There were still uh, recording projects going on. Um, the I I, I did a um, one of those. What do you call them? COVID shows. They're not called COVID shows. Okay, like a live stream. Yeah, live stream show. Um, it was a way to make a little bit. Made a little bit of money from donations from that and it was a it was a solo thing so i just played for an hour hour and a half something like that and it was part of a, another ser- a bigger series where they had other artists play on different nights but uh god that was, that was sort of early on it was around may may or so 2020 and then um a couple months later got my voices did one through noon chorus that service where you can sell tickets and people can watch the online show and we went to Dayton to a club to uh, tape that, and that uh, that went re- uh, really well. I'd say it's not around anymore. Maybe it doesn't always feel this way when you're in it, but from from the outside, it seems like you've always. It seems like you spin a lot of plates. It seems like you've got a you know a ton of different projects, all more or less happening at the same time. How, like during that period when you were forced to, you know, forced mm-hmm. to stay home and, um, forced to slow down in a sense, uh, did, did it, did it drive you nuts? Not really. I was enjoying it. <laughs> I sort of enjoyed not having to, to go anywhere, or see anybody or do anything, but, um, I mean, the other side of the coin was, you don't, you don't, didn't know what the future looked like, and um, if it was survivable, uh, and you're hoping your family and and friends and close people close to you were would make it through as well. But in in a way, it was exciting because he, because you didn't know really what was going to happen next. When I was talking to people really early on, like some of them would admit to me in hushed tones that they, they were actually really enjoying it. Cause you know, it's like not, it's not something that you, and especially in the early days, want to, want to broadcast that, you know, that exactly there's this, yeah. this big benefit for you while, you know, obviously a lot of people are suffering. No, no, of course. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, some people did come out and say it on social media, but I'm not the type to really say anything on social media. So I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to do that. Was it fruitful for you? in terms of songwriting or creativity? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I got some things written. Um, the band did two or three records that year during lockdown. Um, that year and the next year, I guess you could say that's a slow year for guided by voices, right? Yeah, it was, it was, it was normal as far as, uh, recording output goes, but it wasn't 
as far as live shows go, obviously. Um, so that was sort of normal. There were other things happening. Bambi Kino did a... Uh, we did something. Um, well, one thing was the tribute to Adam Schlesinger. Um, and he had engineered some re- really early Bambi Kino things. And so we were part of this sort of online... Uh, tribute celebration to his life uh, and so we so we did um, that thing you do uh, but we did it Bambikino style which means Hamburg uh, Hamburg era cavern Beatles style instead of you know the way he wrote it so that was fun but you know it was it was for a cause as well so So we we made a video and we were all in our own places. Um, only Mark Rosa and I live in New York, and uh, Ira lives in Florida, and Eric lives in L.A. So, but we got it together. Um, hired a guy to sort of put the videos together, and um, we're part of that. I did recording for a guy I know named uh, Matthew Waskovich from Cleveland. He has a project called Scarcity of Tanks. It's that's the general band name, but he f- he forms other bands with people from all over. Um, they're called different band names and they're different recording projects. So I'm part of a few of those, and they still haven't been released yet. But they're, I guess, they're kind of getting close. But I started that in 2020 with him. He already had a bunch of things going. I'm just, I'm just saying, I sort of was part of some of those and um i think those are finally going to see the light of day like there's one with mike watt and nels klein there's one with some cleveland folks um don depew who used to be part of got it by voices and some other people there and um there's one with james mcnew of yellow tango brendan canty and des cadena uh with matthew's singing matthew's doing the vocals for all these and they're they're more they're more sort of a experimental slash punk sort of feel to these things. So that'll be fun. They they have different uh, different band names. God, there's another one. Yeah, Johnny from Crystal Antlers is part of it. Raul from Mike Watts Band. Yeah. So Norm Westberg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to remember the names. But was the intent to create an ongoing thing? I don't know. I, I, I guess um, I wasn't there during the inception of that band, but um, it was mainly Mark Rozo and Ira Elliot um, and Eric Paparozzi was in from the beginning as well. But they formed to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Beatles first going over to Hamburg, which that was in 2010. That was the 50th. <laughs> so now we're. So now we're in the 63rd, but, um, so we did do that and we were the only band that really noticed or was doing anything. There were, there weren't any German bands or British bands sort of celebrating their first going over there in August of 1960. So we went and we played the Indra, the very first place they played. 
We did four nights. The European uh, sort of, sort of the NPR of Europe, Arte channel. Uh, it's French. It's French. French. It's French and German. They they did a whole special on us, and so that was that was a lot of fun. That's on YouTube. The whole thing. Um, so that's the reason we formed them. We went back a year later and played a couple shows and we played some New York shows and we usually do something at least once a year. We're all on different coasts, so it's hard for us to get together. One of the things that's interesting to me about it is that, I mean, so the inception obviously was connected directly to the Beatles and kind of everything around the Beatles has been done to death for a good reason but you 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 it seems like you still managed to find a, a a pretty unique way in it's a it's a high concept tribute man i guess you could say it's because we do the only the covers they did from 60 to 63 that's the basic premise uh we wear the leather jackets but uh that's about that's about as far as we go as far as costuming well we try to have some sort of you know beetle boot I guess you could say, and um, and sort of period correct guitars. But while I could benefit from one, there there are no wigs, nothing like that. Um, but it's a lot of fun, and we sort of we sort of we do it in that style, but we rock it up a little more too. And. Uh, what else was I going to say about it? I'm not sure. I get the sense that the idea behind it isn't to hew as closely to the Beatles versions as possible. Yeah, I mean, we do go from that, though. We we sort of, uh, we come pretty close to their BBC session versions and uh, Star Club album versions. That's, that's kind of what we go, that's kind of what we go on. Some songs we do live, there aren't any recordings of them doing, so we just kind of go from the originals. There's a couple of Fats Domino things we do. There's a Ray Charles, a couple of Ray Charles songs we do. Um, there's no recordings of them doing those songs, so we just kind of do it how we think they would have done it, you know. And we have special guests. We did a record with uh, Mark Lewison this year, the uh, the writer, Beatle author. Um, kind of guest sang a song with us. It was a Joe Brown song. Joe Brown was a guy that he's still around. Um, they covered a lot of his songs. Sort of a Cockney London guy that uh, he wrote sort of countryish songs in a way, and. Um, He's the guy that played the ukulele on the concert for George, if you ever see that. But yeah, he's still around and uh, he had a pretty good career there in the early 60s. Anyway, um, but we have a lot of fun with it. Are there a number of projects like that for you where, um, you know, it's ostensibly still a group, but they only get together, you know, once every year, once every couple? That's kind of the only one. I think, but uh, well, there was 
There was a Death of Samantha reunion that happened around 2011 and subsequent years. The other guys are kind of based in Cleveland, and um, I'm here. So so we would do a show every now and then, but um, we were the... Uh, uh, we existed in the 80s, mid to late 80s. That's John Pekovic and uh, we are on Homestead Records. What spurred that reunion? Just kind of a desire to re-record those songs and get them back out. Because everything's out of print and we just kind of decided to re-record everything. Um do some shows, just sort of, you know, celebrate it a little bit. That was around 2011 or so. For a few years, we would do a show here and there, if it felt right. But um, Dave James and John from that band are now doing a project called Metrolite. It's more more like a sort of a electronic or synth pop sort of a sort of a band um i'll help them out. i'll play some guitar every now and then on that a couple of their things i mean they're they're predominantly electronic so i only play on stuff i'm asked to <laughs> but um it's fun to add some subtle guitar to that dave james is really great at uh, programming and um it sort of has a early 80s vibe i'd say but that's, that's kind of a fun thing. In a case like that, when you're playing again with this, this group of guys who you played with, you know, like, like literally decades before, uh, how quickly does it all come back to you? It, it, as time goes on, it doesn't come back that quickly. I have to go back to the songs and, and study them again and uh, go, oh, yeah, okay. This goes that way. I remember now. But yeah, it's not it's not immediate sometimes. I mean, it depends on the song, or, or it depends on how frequently you played it in the past as well. I mean, clearly it was a good experience, though, if, if you guys continue to do it every so often. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a band that's a lot of fun. Um, it's been several years now since we've, we've done anything, but... It wasn't meant to be a project we pick back up and, and make new stuff with, either. Um, that wasn't really the intention. But um, we, we had our crowd in Cleveland that we, you know, at the time, thirty plus years ago, <laughs> that we attracted, and we had some records out on Homestead there kind of nationally distributed internationally I guess but at that time it wasn't called indie rock it was underground underground rock college rock mm-hmm. you actually opened for the replacements at one point yeah in 84 we we opened up for them in um, in Kent Ohio they were on their let it be promotional tour JB's Down is a small club in Kent that we we played with them at. I think we did another show somewhere with them as well. 
that year, the next year, but I don't remember, remember it at all. For some reason, there's just no memory of it. I only, th- I always thought that was the only show we did, and I, th- I th- still think it is, but I'm not sure. Um, but I remember it. They were, it was great. Bob Stinson was wearing a cardboard box as a dress, and, uh, yeah, they were taking napkin requests, and it's a big drunken bash, you know. Um, But Let It Be was just out, and it was just sort of climbing the college charts, and everyone was really into it. And you were away from Guided by Voices for a number of years. Um, was was it similar, that experience of, of reuniting with Bob? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I, except in that I, I knew how things worked already coming back to it again. And so, you know, I sort of knew the drill and, um, so it wasn't too hard kind of getting back into it. In terms of the way the, the, the band operates and the, um, I guess the, you know, the, the drill, as you said, and the mechanics behind it is, is God of my voice is fairly unique in that respect. I think so. Um, in years past, though, we were on labels, actual labels that uh, had some major distribution and um, and lots of other bands in, on their roster. So they limited us to one <laughs> one album a year, maybe two at the tops. No, usually one. You know, and at that time, Bob had other side projects and a side label to, to get other things out is, you know, uh, other projects that he had, he could sing on and collaborate with, with folks on. So that was the outlet then. And now there's no need for it because the band has its own label. So I guess that's why we do three albums a year. Because we fulfill, we fill that, you know, that gap. I'm always blown away by by people like you, or you know, John Worcester is a good example of this. People who just seem to be in so many projects at at the same time. But it's it it strikes me that it would be especially difficult if Guided by Voices was one of those projects, just given like the sheer volume of music you're putting into the world. Yeah. That's true. Um, well, uh, we always we drop songs from the live set when we put new ones in. So, and with new albums, there's usually maybe five at the five or six anymore at the most that we'll put in. But um, if it's a brand new record, but sort of the subsequent records from recent years past. Uh, Recent records will maybe, those will be down to maybe two or three per album. And then there's, uh, there, there are more classic songs that are always, always sort of in the set list. Um, so it's, it's really not that difficult to, to make sure you know. 
as far as learning new songs, you know, there's not that many to to make sure you know for for live anyway. And the other ones you just need to brush up on, I guess you could say. Again, something that I'm always curious about with people like you or or John is the just like pragmatic question of like finding the time to do things and 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 scheduling. Um, you uh-huh. know, and it, it's hard enough if the bands that you're in are release a, an album every couple of years, but it, it must be just incredibly difficult to get that schedule together when you're in a band that's both touring and putting out multiple albums in a year. It is a little bit. Um, we haven't been playing quite as many shows as we used to. Uh, when we go out, it's usually for a weekend at a time. And separated by a couple weeks at, at the at the least. Um, most, most times more. But I think next year it'll ramp up a little bit. So the live schedule isn't uh, as hectic as it used to be. How would you say your role in Not a Surf is similar or different from Guided by Voices? I uh, sort of in Not a Surf. Um, I I didn't fill in. Um, a lot of the meat of the guitar like I do with GBV. I would play a solo every now and then or, or add sort of... Um, I would add, add some color to the music and add some licks or colorful chords, um, which is something I really enjoy doing uh, more than more than making up solos and leads. But... Uh, but also, what was different with Not a Surf, I had a hand in s- sort of helping write every now and then. Um, some of the songs were more collaborative. Um, and nothing nothing that meaty, but I would come up with an intro or come up with a bridge idea, you know, um, here and there. And so when 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 they sit down and write a record, it's um, they get together and um, kind of bandy about ideas, and and you know Matthew will have a, a good amount. He'll have a pretty good idea of how he wants the the main part to go usually, but um, it's open to discussion as far as structure and so everyone has input w- with that. Um, I'm guided by voices. The songs come fully formed, for the most part. Yeah, songs come fully formed, um, excepting the occasions where Bob will say, "I want you guys to write a couple songs for the record," or, "Hey, Doug, I'm gonna we're gonna do the Simon Tree song." That was back. Well, that was back in '96. But um, the band members did write songs for August by Cake which was our 2016 album, 2017 album. Um, and that was to kind of fill out the time on a double double record. That was a double LP. So each member kind of brought two songs to the table as well as the ones that Bob had. So, so that was a lot of fun. 
I feel like a dummy because I only just discovered that uh, I Am a Tree is not a Guided by Voices original. Oh, yeah. Well, it didn't come out. It did come out as, as under Jem's name, but only after Meg Earwood came out. We'd recorded it back in 93, and I didn't put it on our the Gem album that came out in 95. I left it off for some reason, and um, Bob had already had it on a cassette I gave him of stuff. Uh, when we Gem we, opened up for Got It By Voice and so did Cobra Verde back in the early 90s, and that's so we were already all friends and everything. And in that, uh, that, one of those times I, I gave him a cassette of, uh, gem stuff. Hey, hey, here's what we do and blah, blah, blah. So when it came time to record Mag Earwig, he said, Hey, I like that song. Um, since you didn't do anything with it, would you mind if we record it? I said, No, it'd be great. That was your first album with GBV. Is that right? Mag Earwig, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how many cases of this, I, I can't think of, many off the top of my head, but of, you know, the, the band leader effectively like br- bringing an entire band into the fold. And I, and I respect that because, you know, like there's no, you know, that these, you know, that this group of guys like play well together and get along. So it's kind of like a, it, it, it's an easy kickstart there. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's kind of like Bob Dylan in the band or something. There's probably better examples. <laughs> um, I don't know. One of the, so you sent me the Vanity Kino stuff, and the other thing that you sent me that was really interesting was the um, the Scott Miller collaboration. I I want to say I want to say it was at the Cake Shop, but but shortly after he passed, there was a tribute show, and I'm I'm sure. Oh right, yeah, I was part of that tribute show. Yeah, it was at yeah. the Cake Shop. Mm-hmm. I wasn't super familiar with his music. I just went because like the the list of people that were performing are great. But I after after the event, I I really connected with with his music. I bought. I'm actually looking at it. It's uh, on my bookshelf right now. The uh, uh, the music what happened book. He was like a oh, great right. yeah music writer in addition to to songwriter. Yeah. How did how did the two of you start working together? Oh, well, I'd only met him once for a very short period of time, meaning a few minutes. (laughs) Uh, My wife knew him when she lived in the Bay Area a little bit, but she was a big fan. And um, that wasn't, yeah, this wasn't a a true collaboration. It was, it's a posthumous collaboration, I guess you could say. Um, so this record, this Supercalifragile album came out 2014 or so. No, 2017. I don't I forget, 2016. To little or no fanfare, and it was sort of, it was a very soft release, and uh, I think it's on Bandcamp, but that's about it. And I only kind of remembered it and brought it back up because I think there might be a reissuing coming forth. I'm not sure maybe in the next year or so um, but at the time 
uh, Ken Stringfellow had uh, was working closely with the estate, and he got um, a lot of Scott's song ideas in progress that he hadn't finished. Um, this included voice memos from iPhones and things, and so he assigned a few different people these these snippets. And our job was to uh, finish the song. And the one that I got, Say Goodbye, was very... It was very hard to decipher what what some of the lyrics were or where he was going with the chord progression. So a lot of that I had to sort of make up and I just kind of imagined Scott's style um, from, you know, years of listening to Game Theory and Loud Family and stuff like that what he might have done. And so a lot of that was guesswork um, while trying to use as many lyrics as I could make out and as much melody as, as he had in these sort of disembodied few second long um, voice memos from the phone, <laughs> which was also a strange thing to hear um, after he was gone, you know, um, and also not having been that close to him. But, um, it was a challenge, but, um, I enjoyed doing it. Um, Travis played drums on it, Travis Harrison, and, uh, he and I recorded that at his studio. Um, and when it was all done, um, I turned it in and he's, Ken said, how about, Hey, I want to have Pete Buck play some mandolin over this. I said, sure, that'd be great. So that happened. There's a Pete Buck mandolin track on it, and um, and it never, it wasn't really on an official label, so it didn't really get reviewed, and didn't really get any press. So, um, like I said, I don't know what's going to happen with it. It's still, it's not official that it's going to be uh, re-released, but um, I think it's going to be resequenced and. Um, gone over a little a little more yeah it would be nice if if it got a a second life the the process is really interesting it like the best analogy i can come up with is when they um just find like a femur like a dinosaur femur and attempt to reconstruct the entire yeah. animal based on the one bone that was kind of like that i think john hour was one of the other other folks that got a song like this to sort of finish or sort of fill out, you know? Um, so it was quite, I, I, it was quite an undertaking. I, I made sure to try to put sort of math like, um, rhythmic parts in or unorthodox counts, not just straight four, like, uh, Scott may have done. He might not have done anything like the way it turned out. For sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Obviously you can never know, but he, he, yeah, I mean, based on everything I know about him, he did seem like a very mathematically minded person. Yeah, he was an he was a drafting engineer. I think he was. Yeah, he's very mathematically minded, but um, had a great talent for for music, obviously. So, I, I think just with his stuff, with the game theory stuff in general, it's it's like it's criminally under 
underrated, but also like, but also unheard, you know, it's, he, you know, I, I, he got, when he passed, obviously, you know, some more people reconnected with him, but, you know, it's a, it's a good opportunity to kind of, to, to expose people to this, this artist. Well, they really made a go of it though. They, they tried as hard as they could. They made videos. They got on 120 minutes a few times. You know, MTV did play their stuff. They were on um, Big Time? I forget what labels. Game Theory was always on. Um, Loud Family, the band after Game Theory, was on some things too. But, um, you know, independently indie distributed labels. So, uh, they tried really hard, but um, didn't really quite break through the mainstream it's both very it's both kind of frustrating but also pretty great is when you somehow this band that you end up loving has gone just completely under your radar and you have this just entire catalog of music to rediscover yeah i mean that that's a good thing sometimes you know um because they're not oversaturated. They're undersaturated. Yeah. And it's also just nice to have like a new, you know, like a new vein you can tap for music. Yeah. There's also a game theory tribute record that was in the works. I had, I had already recorded a cover of this song called dripping with looks back in gosh, 2014 or something. Um, for an initial sort of, Scott Miller tribute record that was going to come out. And then that, um, that didn't, that stopped happening. So this, these other folks kind of picked up the mantle and uh, a couple of years ago. And now I still don't know where it's at. There was a bunch of people slated to contribute and I, I turned in my track, gave my track. Um, Jules Verdone was another, was another person that has a track. Um, and lots of other folks too, but it's been a couple of years and I haven't had any, heard any word about that. I think it was like, was Omnivore part of it? I think I know big stir records was part of it. Um, but it was sort of two labels collaborating to, to, to do this. And, um, I don't know where the project is right now. So what's the status of your solo career at this point? Uh, it's, um, can't really say, cause I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, not a big secret at all, but I've been writing and, and trying to sort of, um, get, get things, get things together to, to finish recording. I've started recording things, stopped recording things. Um, since, I mean, I, I had three solo records out. I think the last one was 2014, maybe. Yeah. And those are all in Bandcamp right now, pretty much. Um, but I mean, I've, I've had songs on compilations that have come out during the pandemic and here and there, but, uh, it's also sort of uh, the, the case is everything's all over the place and you, you don't know. There aren't really labels anymore. 
record labels. Um, and you don't know if there is distribution or not. Are you just going to throw it on Spotify? Is it just going to be a Bandcamp album? Is it just going to be what? you know? So um, when you don't really have a machine behind you or a label, um, you don't know what things are going to end up on. So, But I think what, what needs to happen is you, you just make it and uh, make it and then um, it'll find its way somewhere. You know, make things. There's a sense maybe in which it, it can be liberating as far as not having to not having to work with a, a big machine like that. And you and you do have this platform in, in Bandcamp and you could, you know, just release a song or two every so often if that's what you wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's very, very true. And that's actually not a bad idea. You know, I've done things here and there, the, the, the special occasion songs or or whatever. I did a tribute to P-22, the, the mountain lion that got caught last year and had to be euthanized in the You did Hollywood that for Hills. my friend John show. Oh, yeah, John Solomon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's still up there. It's on Bandcamp. I just put it up there for free. Um. But, uh, yeah, so. Nothing more to add, really, to that. <laughs> but I just went out there to be part of this uh, benefit for Denny Lane. This happened before he passed, but um, there's a show at the Troubadour. And um, there's a lot of people involved. Tim Heidecker, Neil Hamburger. Paul Schaefer was there. Joe Bouchard, bassist of Blue, Blue Oyster Cult, was there. Mickey Dolans, Peter Asher. Um, That's a wild mix of people. It was. It was a crazy show. Um, there was a house band, and it was mainly uh, guys who were in Denny's touring band. Um, Eric from Bambikino was one of those guys. Uh, Alex Jules and Amin and uh, Brian were also part of his band. But anyway... They learned all these songs, and um, the song that I did was Heartbeat. It's a Buddy Holly song that uh, Denny Lane did on... He had a record called Holly Days out in 77. Um, an album of Buddy Holly covers that uh, Paul and Linda produced. Um, so, that was fun. That exists on YouTube somewhere now, I think. But that was just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we raised money that, you know, it went to... Uh, Denny's medical costs 